Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today it's all about the legendary, maybe the biggest legend in pro wrestling history, Andre the Giant. Dave Meltzer from Wrestling Observer and author Pat LaProd, who just released his new book, The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant, are both on the show to talk about Andre and his uh, massive career. The book's a fascinating read. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Pat talked to everybody and has so many great stories about Andre's life and career. We're going to talk all about them from Andre's early work in Japan to his relationships with both Vince McMahon Sr. and, of course, Vince McMahon Jr., although he hates to be called Jr., uh, to his legendary feud with Hulk Hogan. You'll also hear about the disease that caused Andre's giantism and why he never did anything about it. Andre's story is coming up huge uh, very, very soon, and so is the Saturday special. I'm going to be telling more stories on my own and answering all your questions So come hang out with me this Saturday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Facebook Live and my official YouTube channel. Bring your bevy. Bring your song suggestion for the sing-along. It's the Saturday night special number 15. Wow, it's been 15 already. This Saturday night, 9 p.m. Eastern on my official YouTube channel and Facebook Live. So uh, go check that out and get ready to check out the eighth wonder of the world, the true story of Andre the Giant with Pat LaPrade and Dave Meltzer starting now on Talk is Jericho. So a new book is coming out right now, and it's a perfect time to be reading books now that we're all kind of at home and uh, looking for things to do. And one of the most interesting characters in the history of pro wrestling has to be Andre the Giant. And the book is called The Eighth, the Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant by Pat LaProd, who's joining us along with uh, expert of all things wrestling, Dave Meltzer. And uh, Pat, I guess, first of all, when you talk about the history of wrestling, the two names that still stand out to this day are Hulk Hogan and, of course, Andre the Giant. Everybody knows those two names, even now, 30-odd years after Andre's death. Is that one of the reasons why you wanted to kind of explore his life a little bit more? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Andre was a name that resonated to me since my uh, childhood, right? Because, you know, I was born in, in, in 76. I first went to my first uh, pro wrestling show at six years old. So international wrestling here in Montreal was really big. And Andre was still working for them when I started watching wrestling. And then I switched to WWF and he was a big part of them as well. You know, I must have answered WrestleMania 3 on VHS at least 10 times uh, when I I was a kid. So, I mean, you know, having written books on Montreal territory and on Mad Dog Deschamps, and being part of the HBA documentary as still producer, it's all right, you know, that our next subject would be uh, would be Andre the Giant. Andre's one of those guys that there's so many tales about him and so many, you know, and when watching that HBO documentary, I thought it was really well done, but, but definitely one of the most storied characters uh, in the history of the business. Don't you agree, Dave? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's from every aspect of Andre because... You know, Andre himself and publicists and everything like that, they created these, this storyline of the giant lumberjack moving a redwood tree from, you know, from day one. Everything about Andre was, was a myth, and he played into it really well. The thing that, about the book that fascinated me so much is that the actual depth and, and you know, story of Andre Rusimov, the person, is actually a lot more interesting when you look at it than... You know, the lumberjack, the Paul Bunyan myths that surrounded Andre. But, I mean, as far as, like, you know, I mean, I I would have to say that he was the most famous wrestler in the world for 
a long period of time, you know, probably until Hulk Hogan and, and they were synonymous with each other for a long period of time. You know, and again, all over the world, you know, everyone knew Andre the Giant. It's interesting that like nowadays, like in 2020, we have Paul White and you have, I mean, we had uh, um, the Giant Gonzalez and, and, you know, there's there's a lot of legit, I mean, Dalip Singh. It seems like it was, Giants weren't as <laughs> as prevalent, shall we say, in the 60s and 70s to where Andre really stood out. Yeah. yeah I think I one, mean, of the things, I, one of the things, because before, in the early 60s, you had when Baba turned, Giant Baba toured the United States, and he was very tall. He was probably 6'8". Mm-hmm. And he was a big attraction before Andre. And then after that, like the big touring attraction was Haystacks Calhoun at 600 pounds. But Andre was so much more physically impressive than both of those guys. And I think, you know, part of it was that, you know, you didn't have a whole lot of guys that were 6'8 and above. You know, you had Hogan, who was probably, you know, was less than that. And you had Don Leo and John Studd and uh, Mulligan. And they're they're like 6'5", 6'6", type of guys. So Andre still towered over them. Whereas now, if you, you know, with the Kevin Nash and, and um, you did have Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd was, was close to Andre's height, but... Sky High Lee and Grizzly Smith, but I don't even remember Grizzly Smith ever working with Andre. I mean, he probably did at some point, but you didn't really have on a national basis, you know, the Kevin Nash, Big Show type of guy. So Andre's height, unless he was in there with like a mulligan, really, or Kowalski, really stood out. And even with them, he was his, his dimensions were so large. And he, even, you know, if he was even in with Big Show now, the one thing with the two of them together is, is even if the height wouldn't be different, Andre still had that those dimensions, you know, because of the acromegaly that went unchecked, you know, the giant hands and the giant feet and the giant head that Paul White really didn't have at the same, you know, at the same level. He still had that, um, you know, a weird feeling when you were in, when you watch Andre, there was this feeling of inhuman power as opposed to just being a, a tall, heavy guy. Pat, why, why did, I mean, you talk about the acromegalia, and I know Paul White and Great Khali, I mentioned Dalip Singh, obviously Great Khali, same guy, uh, they had the surgery to get rid of the uh, the gland that causes the acromegalia. I believe Ron Reese did too, who was in WCW for a while, he was the big, uh, whatever they called him, T-Rex or whatever his name was, I can't remember what his name was, but... Yeti. Yeti, the Yeti, but he had another name too, though, I guess maybe it was just Ron Reese. Pat, was that was that surgery available for Andre to get in the seventies? And if so, why did he, he never get that done? Oh yeah, the, the surgery was available for him. I'm presuming that I think it was misinformed in the sense that uh, he first learned about his uh, the disease in Japan in January of 1970. Was he was it there that he was misinformed? You know, it was a different language. It was uh, it was in his own country. I mean, he was still living in France at the time. But even though, uh, even in 1981, when he was uh, and when he got the surgery on his ankle, he was told again that you know he had the disease and that you know he could get surgery. And he always, always refused to uh, to get it. The way he was explaining it to Jackie McCauley, uh with her husband, Frenchy Bernard, was uh, were living in uh, in Andre's ranch and you know, was taking care of the ranch for him when he was away, you know, he was saying to them that God made him this way and he didn't want to change it. And he was also scared that his dimensions were, you know, were, were going to change if he was getting the surgery. The dimensions that uh, that Dave was just talking about, you know, his, his larger-than-life dimensions, he, he thought that he, lose, that he would lose what made him special. 
And, you know, I, I have to think that he was misinformed because, I mean, it, it would have not changed that much, uh, especially later in life. But, you know, that's, that's the choice he made. I, I cannot explain it. Uh, I cannot understand it, but I can explain it. I mean, Paul White's probably the best example because I think that Paul Paul had the surgery, I think, like when he was about 2021. 20, like, when, you know, he I, I was in college at the time. And if he didn't have the surgery, he probably would have, as he aged, and more and more similar to Andre. But Paul still was able to have a, a wrestling career, and he's still a larger-than-life giant. And, and if you remember when Andre first, if you look at the, the, the early 70s, let's say, when, when Andre first became an attraction, it really hadn't hit. It really wasn't until, I mean, it was a gradual onset, but you know, by the time, like, like the dimensions that he had, let's say, when he was 24-ish, um, if he had, you know, got it taken care of then, which was in Japan, he still was going to be taller than everybody, and he was still going to be bigger than everybody. It wouldn't have been like he was in the 80s with the giant hands and the giant feet. But he didn't really need that at the time anyway, because the Andre the Giant of the 70s was already a, a big attraction before it really, you know, took its course, so to speak. You can also see a difference between between him if you if you look at YouTube clips from him wrestling in France back in nineteen sixty eight, he was still tall and lean. And you can really see that he changed two years later when the YouTube clip from I believe October of nineteen seventy. And you could see his you know his dimensions are already changed. So it, it was really a progress and, and later in the seventies and then the eighties it was even even worse, you know, but uh, you, you could see the uh, evolution of uh, of the disorder throughout the years. You know, it's interesting you see a couple pictures of him, uh, like you mentioned, as a young man. He almost looks like a young Lou Ferrigno. They've got the same sort of face. And then as he gets older, he doesn't have the, those Ferrigno features anymore. Like you said, you can see his head just growing uh, completely. Yeah, he kind of goes... Yeah, uh, at, at the end, he's almost like... Um, if you look at the pictures of the, the French Angel, who was a big star in wrestling in the 40s, right. people who don't know the French Angel but will know Shrek, you know, the, the cartoon character who was based on the French Angel. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Andre developed you know, more and more because the, the French Angel had the same disease and was a huge attraction in wrestling, but he was much shorter. I think he was 5'10", 5, 5, 11, but he had the same, right. same type of growth in the hands and the head. What's that guy's name? Oh, Lars Sullivan, same thing. He's kind of got the... The giantism without being a giant. Barcelona had the same operation, yeah. Right, right. But it's interesting. So one thing about your book, Pat, is is it's so expansive as far as Andre's early career uh, in the 60s and 70s. But for me, when I got into wrestling, was about 83 or so through my grandmother. So I think, I think Andre came through AWA a few times. But when WWF went national, he was just kind of a... Uh, Everyone knew Andre the Giant, and he was in WWE, but I didn't realize how long he'd actually been wrestling for, and I didn't realize that he was almost that kind of the the, the down part of his career at that point in time because they promoted him so well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in, in 1983, uh, Andre was wrestling for uh, for 17 years by then. Wow, he started in 1966 back in in France. I mean, even even before coming to uh, to Montreal. He had wrestled in Japan, throughout Europe, in England, uh, in Africa. I mean, he, he had almost toured the world even before coming to North America in, in 1971. By 1983, 
he was such a well-known. He, he was he was the, probably the uh, the most known uh, pro wrestler in the world uh, by 1983, and Vince used him a lot in the new territory that he was trying to to get. You know, when he wanted to go national, so every big uh, big town that he was gonna produce a show for the first time, he was bringing Andre with him. Because he was such a big attraction that it would almost guarantee him a big attendance on his first time there. There's a few towns that that he didn't use Andre because Andre was still was still traveling to Japan. So when he was in Japan, he wasn't you know he couldn't be used for those. And Montreal was one of them. And the belief is that even when he came back from Japan, he wasn't used in Montreal. And the belief was that he didn't want to go. Uh, head-to-head with his good friend, Gino Brito, who he was partnered with a few years prior when uh, when international wrestling uh, was created in 1980. So, uh, oh yeah, I mean, Andre was a huge part of the uh, national extension that the WWF did in 93, 94, uh, 83, 84. what was the difference in the relationship between Andre and Vince Sr. and Andre and Vince Jr.? Vince Senior, you know, Vince Senior was like his his booker, and he came in 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 seventy three from Montreal, and they the Vachon, Paul Vachon, uh sent him to to Vince Senior, and Vince Senior basically came up with the idea that that he's got to tour all over rather than stay in one place, so he was essentially very similar to like the NWA World Champion, you know, where he would just be constantly touring all over the world, and um, when Vince Jr. came in or took over in '82, you know he started setting in in, in place the, the seeds of this national expansion, and he still in '83. Vince Sr. was still, I think, booking Andre, and I think around '84 was when all of a sudden the other promoters started like not getting any dates on Andre or asking for Andre dates on certain days and being told no, and that was kind of like I remember um, Paul Bosch and Peter Burkholz actually told me that they when they realized that Vince was actually going to war with them, you know, because they were all getting along. You know, they were all, you know, the, all the promoters, I don't want to say get along, but they worked together, was when they asked for Andre for their annual Battle Royal in January, which he would come to every year, and he was, they were told no. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, something's up here. And at that point, under Vince Jr., he became WWF, but he still would work Japan, you know, all the way through. He actually... After he was done in WWF and never worked in North America anymore, he worked in Japan until, what was it, about what, two months before his death? You know, I mean, right until the end almost. He was still in December 86. He was still wrestling in Japan in December of, uh, uh, November, December of 1992, so just, just before his death. The, right. the big difference between, between the way that Vince Sr. and Vince Jr. used Andre is that Vince Sr. didn't use him much in his own territory because he was getting a cut on Andre when he was traveling all over the world. So he was making money out of Andre without using him in his own territory. And what, what he had learned from, uh, from the Vachons and, and Grand Prix wrestling is that if you use Andre too much in the same territory, he wasn't going to draw as much as uh, he would uh, when, when he first book him. So hmm. he sent Andre all over the place, still making money out of him, and that's what Andre likes. He could travel the world, visiting different friends from different uh, different offices, different promotions, 
And I think that's what he, he didn't like from Vince Jr. in the sense that Vince Jr. kept him more in his own territory and, and Andre didn't have to see uh, all of his friends. You know, he, it was the same locker room traveling, he was still traveling throughout North America, but it was the same locker room over and over. And I think that Andre had a lot of, uh, of bitterness to, to Vince, Vince Jr. because of, uh, because of this, it changed the whole way Andre was used to uh, doing things. It's interesting. Interesting point. Um, something else too that I love reading in the book because I I know a few of these stories and we could discuss one in particular in a few seconds. But just how much respect Andre had from the boys, uh, as far as if he didn't want to do something, he wouldn't do it. If he wanted somebody to get fired, they would get fired, uh, and that seemed to continue on all the way into WWE. F times when you mentioned that even he didn't like Randy Savage or he didn't like Bam Bam Bigelow. How much influence did he really have with the office and how much of this is, is the folklore of Andre the Giant? I mean, he was, um, he was so influential because he was such a big attraction that you didn't want to say no to Andre. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, he was working for uh, Inoki uh, and, in Japan, for New Japan. In, in the mid to late 70s. And uh, the, the first promotion he worked for in Japan was IWE. And the promoter there, Yoshihara, is the first one to have brought him to, uh, to Japan. And Andre was always loyal to the first people who actually, you know, gave him a chance, a chance in the business. And when he heard that Yoshihara had trouble with his promotion, when, when IWE wasn't a player anymore, you know, it was all about New Japan and then All Japan, he asked to, he, he went to work for Yoshihara for a few days. And Inoki wasn't going to say no. He, wasn't, he, he would have not allowed anyone else to do so. But Andre was so respected and Andre meant so much business that, you know, he would have not said no to Andre in fear of Andre just not willing to work for him anymore. It wasn't worth it because IWE wasn't much of a competition for him in a way. And I believe that it was the same case in other stories about Andre. I mean, he was so valuable for so many promoters and, and so well respected as well that, you know, he was having its way on, on a lot of occasions. We well, you know the one story that this reminds me of is, and Chris, you'll kind of understand this one, because when you were in Japan, you know, I mean, New Japan and All Japan were kind of like the big two. Right. Andre, for the bulk of his Japanese career, worked for New Japan and Inoki. And Inoki and Andre was a big, big feud. And it got to a point, I mean, New Japan and All Japan were different in the sense, New Japan was a very hard athletic style. And after whatever it was, 85, 86, I forgot the year, it was pretty much they understood that they didn't have a place for Andre anymore. He couldn't work that main event style anymore. His body was turning on him. And Inoki actually let, and he may even have asked Baba, but whatever it was, even though those companies were warring, the respect for Andre was such that Inoki and Baba was, it was kind of a deal like, Baba, you know, please, please book Andre. We, because Baba would have a comedy match in the middle of the card that Baba himself was in with some of the older guys, you know, that were, that, you know, weren't going to work a hard style, but they're, they're there and everybody's happy to see Baba at the house show. And they would be really happy to see Andre, but he's no longer main event. And that's why, you know, long after um, Andre was able to work in the United States, he continued to work with Baba until the very end because it was, it was a lighthearted match where 
the demands weren't there, you know, to where Andre couldn't do it anymore and it wouldn't embarrass Andre working, trying to work with faster, more athletic young guys. And so the idea that a, a great attraction like Andre in the middle of a wrestling war and those guys warred with, you know, those two companies warred with each other for decades, that they would have an agreement that, hey, Andre's special, you have to take care of him and, and we just can't do it anymore, so please take him. I mean, that's, to me, that's one of the mo- more amazing stories when it comes to the power and how much, how much Andre was loved and respected. Did Vince have that same attitude? Uh, Vince, Vince Jr. Uh, have the same attitude about Andre that we have to take care of this guy as much as we can? I mean, they, had, they definitely had a falling out at the end because, and, and Pat would know more about it than me, but, and it was even in the documentary, it was, you know, Vince even acknowledged it, that Vince had to, at one point, you know, I think that there was a point where um, they were going to use him as a manager or something, and I remember they did an angle with Earthquake. There were a couple of things where it looked like Andre was going to come back, and then he didn't, and then he was just pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. He did do the one appearance on WCW television, which Vince hated, you know, really bad. I remember that. Um, it was on um, like an anniversary show. He didn't wrestle or anything. It was just an anniversary special on TBS. And Andre was the guest. And I was amazed, you know, and Andre was on crutches then, which kind of, you know, was really sad to see. But Andre being on that show, you know, Vince was very upset that, that Andre appeared on that show, but Vince had stopped using him. Mm-hmm. And Andre was upset that, that Vince had stopped using him. Andre didn't know what else to do then, than wrestling. Right. It, it was his whole life. It was it was the only place for him. A wrestling locker room was the only place for him where he felt normal. Right. You know, everywhere he was going, he was pointed at, he was uh, laughed at, he was yelled at, he was cheered, he was children would, would want a picture, would cry in front of him, depending if the, the kid was scared or not of Andre, but he couldn't live a normal life. The only place where he felt like any other human being was a wrestling locker room. He didn't want this to stop. And at one point, well, you know, Vince kind of tried to make him understand that, you know, his, his, his wrestling career was pretty much over. And, and he felt a lot of, uh, of, of a, he got a lot of resentment against Vince because of this. And I mean, their falling out is pretty much, you know, because of this. It, it wasn't nothing that Vince did wrong. He was just trying to tell Andre that, you know, you should retire, and, and, and Andre wasn't ready for that, and that's why he kept going, he kept wrestling in Mexico, and he kept wrestling in Japan, even though it was so hard for any fan of Andre to watch this, and, and, and they wouldn't, wouldn't know more than, than Nick as he watched those matches uh, as they were happening, but, I mean, he just kept going and didn't want to retire, and that's, that's where the following out with Vince came. It's funny too, just as a quick segue, that we just did um, the dark side of the ring. I was mentioning to Pat the, the Dino Bravo episode, but also in the in the Herb Abrams episode, you see Andre was in UWF for a short period of time, one appearance, and then Vince brought Andre back right away, right after that. But point being, why wouldn't Vince just have hired Andre on to be an ambassador to the company? Because the way that, of course, the, the history of the WWE is always kind of written to whatever they want to say. They have the Andre the Giant Battle Royal every year at WrestleMania. And if he was such a big attraction to the McMahon family since the 70s, why not just sign to some kind of an ambassador role? I think that if it was today, 100% that's what would happen. Right. And I'm thinking that it wasn't even the finances because you could go, well, 
you know, I mean, because they really were making enough money to where something like that they could do it. I think it's probably he just didn't come up with that idea yet. You know what I mean? Of 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 having a guy like he would, you know, he took care of Blassie, okay, until Blassie's death. But Blassie still would be a guy who, who whose, whose job would be in the office and he would call up radio stations and cut promos on radio stations to build up, you know, the local matches, you know, and and, and everything. But Andre, like, he really, there was, like, no role where Andre would call up radio stations because he really wasn't a great radio interview, obviously, because, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So I think that, you know, yeah, Andre probably today had come along. Look, look at Big Show. He's not wrestling hardly at all anymore. And he'll be with the company forever. Or Mark Henry, you know, they'll have an affiliation. If it was today, for sure he would. It's just, I just think Vince never came up with it. And in those days, when you're done, you're done. And yeah. in his mind, there was just nothing in the ring you could do with Andre anymore. Let's talk about some of the funnier stories in there. Like why Andre didn't like Randy Savage. I thought that was a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Andre didn't like Randy and, and you know, watching uh, the documentary, you, 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 you have a feel, you know, that, that Andre really didn't like Randy. And when I spoke to uh, Lanny Posso, Randy's brother, about it, it was like, oh, yeah, that is 100% true. Uh, Andre didn't like my brother. And the reason why is that Randy was wrestling with uh, baby oil on. And Andre didn't like it one bit. <laughs> uh, and, and even Lanny tried to tell Randy, you know, why don't you put any baby oil when you're wrestling Andre? And he didn't want to make any exceptions. The reason behind it, and people have to understand, Andre, uh, it, it was hard for no, nothing was was made for Andre. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was hard for him to take a shower when he was coming back to his hotel room because the, the shower in, in, in the hotel he was living at weren't made for a, a person of his size. Yeah. So it was hard. Sometimes he would prefer just to stay at the bar alone, uh, alone at night and keep drinking than having to go back to his room and doing nothing and, and all that. So, I mean, can you imagine if Andre was full of baby oil on after a match? It, it's hard for us. It would be hard for us to get rid of all those, all that baby oil, let alone Andre, who had trouble just getting in a shower to begin with. So, so I think Randy never understand that, never understood that. And Andre probably never explained it to Randy mm-hmm. because of proud, maybe because of he was he was too proud, or maybe he wanted Randy to to find the explanation himself, you know. But he really didn't like uh, Randy. He, he was one of them, you know. I mean, he didn't like John Scott. He didn't like uh, Aaron Shee. There was a few like if, if Andre liked you, he really liked you. But if he dislikes you, man, you would you would feel it. <laughs> <laughs> I heard. I heard. Um, he used to always say that he didn't like Ultimate Warrior either. Oh, really? Ultimate Warrior. He didn't like. He didn't like the way he worked. He was stiff, you know. And that, that this is there's this, this great story with Bobby Heenan, who said that you know once every time Warrior was coming up with his clothesline, he was he was stiff and stiff, and Andre would didn't like it one bit. And then one time, Warrior came to do his clothesline and Andre just put his fist in front of him and Warrior ran into his fist. And the next time, he did a clothesline and uh, he did it so light. And Andre, you know, bummed for him and sold for him like he came up at full speed. And uh, Andre looked at Ian and said, 
he's learning. <laughs> so, so after that, I think it was all right. I, I think I think it was all right with Warner after that. <laughs> There's a great story in the book, and I know this story, and it's pretty much verbatim from what I was told because, as you guys know, I started in Calgary, which is where Bad News Allen was from and lived. So my first three or four years in the business, I worked with Bad News quite a bit, either on the same shows or – we had kind of a heel faction, me and Bad News and Don Callis at one point in, in the little local Winnipeg thing. So I heard that story with Andre and uh, and Bad News, which was pretty much verbatim the way that News explained it. Because he, he was not a bullshitter. Bad News is one of the few guys I've ever met in wrestling who didn't add the wrestling embellishments. Dave, you know that story. Why don't you tell it? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the finish to it that's not in the book from what Bad News told me. I mean, Bad News was the one who actually told me the same story, so I'm sure I heard exactly what you heard. They were on a bus. In Japan. You know, with New Japan. Yeah. And I guess Andre said something racial, and Bad News, the way he told me the story was just like, you know, he wasn't going to put up with it. And he, he said, like, sometimes there's the story of, like, Bad News thought he could beat him up. And Bad News, to me, was like, look, I'm not saying that I could beat him up or or, or that I scared him, but... I was going to go down fighting. You know, it's just like, you just don't say that. And then Bad News was, you know, one of the toughest guys ever, you know, I mean, anyway, on his own. Yeah. He had words with Andre and, you know, basically like, you know, don't say it and, and, uh, you know, don't say that stuff around me. And, and he was, he absolutely was willing to fight him and, and whether he would win the fight or lose the fight, it didn't matter. He was willing to fight over it, but Andre just kind of was like, okay, it's whatever, you know, like that. Well, he, he said, pull the bus over. And he went to the bus driver. Right, pulled the bus and over. Bad, and bad news, like he said, one of the toughest, also very intimidating. Like every black exploitation Jim Brown movie from the 70s of these badass black dudes, that was bad news. And he said to the bus driver, and he even remembered the bus driver's name. I can't remember what the bus driver's name was, but he said, pull over, pull over. Hanson was saying, don't do it. And he said, do it, pull over. The bus driver wouldn't pull over. But like it says in the book, that bad news waited up all night long for Andre. He was so pissed off. And when Andre came out in the morning, he apologized. The news said that they ain't gonna fly. I, w- I want the, you need to whatever whatever the finish of it was. How did that? How was that resolved, Pat? Well, I mean, bad news. He was really offended by by what Andre said, right? And he wasn't gonna put up with it. And and he, he really wanted to make sure that Andre understood that you know he was not to use that word again in front of Bad News Brown, you know, and, and uh, or Bad News Allen, uh, as it was called at the time. So, uh, I mean, it was really important. And I mean, it was important to us to talk about it in the book as well, because it happened on two occasions. It happened with, with Bad News, it happened with Kamala as well. Mm-hmm. And both times, Andre uh, apologized, and, and both Kamala and Bad News were okay with Andre after they had to talk with him. But the thing was that uh, it was important for us to talk about this in the book because we didn't want to just talk about the good things of Andre. We wanted to talk, we wanted to have a real portrait of Andre. And like any human being, he made mistakes. Right. And he, he did bad calls. And, and this was one of them, you know? So it was important for us to, uh, to mention that in the book. That said, he was never considered as a racist. He did some, you know, obviously did some some racist remarks, but he was never considered by by by, by news and Canada as racist. And he worked with, you know, 
plenty of uh, Afro-Americans throughout the years. And, and, you know, this is the only two occasions that, that we have heard of. But it was important for us to mention those in the book as well. The, the, the epilogue of the story that news told me was years later when they worked in, in Mexico. They worked for uh, Minas there in UWF. That uh, <laughs> that Andre was having some issues with, uh, with with his stomach, and basically gave bad news. Remember, Andre used to just basically stick his ass in your face in the corner type thing, and uh, basically when he did that, he farted and filled his pants with uh, with diarrhea that was <laughs> that was in bad news's face. And I still can hear bad news laughing about that story, like this motherfucker. He shit all over my face. That was revenge for me. <laughs> Called him out in Japan. <laughs> yeah, he was. I mean, he, he actually used to. And when bad news, when bad news was talking about it on on interviews, you could you could see that he felt so bad for Andre. Yeah. You know, he knew it wasn't. He knew he didn't do it on purpose, and you know, he, he, it just happened. You know, and you could you could feel that he felt so bad uh, for for Andre, and Andre must have felt. Must have, must have felt bad as well. You know, it was just, you know, it, it happened, you know? Yeah. What were you going to say, Dave? Yeah, I mean, it, it was that it was seated splash thing where he would stick his butt on the guy and jump on him. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, too, is I remember, um, I think Bad News said that, like, you know, he was just, like, throwing up. I mean, it was, like, the grossest thing probably his entire <laughs> life. You know, when that happened, it was just like he just, he'd start vomiting and, and everything would, when they, you know, it's Andre's diarrhea all over his face. <laughs> Let's talk about the the biggest angle of Andre's career, at least as far as as, as I know, as a as a teenager growing up and being just enthralled by by WWF. Of course, Hogan and, and Andre for WrestleMania three. Give us a little bit of background of that story, Dave, and and, and Vince's genius decision to turn Andre heel at that point after being the the babyface of all babyfaces in the states for a decade. Yeah, I mean it's funny because um, you know Andre was always a heel in Japan, and I always liked. You know, when, you know, growing up with Andre as a baby face and then seeing him as a heel in Japan was so fascinating to me. And I liked him more because, you know, you know, just from your own thing, as a heel, you, there's just more things that you can do in a lot of ways. And it's, it's I don't want to say more fulfilling. I mean, everyone's different. But Andre was more interesting to me as a heel going against the smaller Japanese wrestlers. I found the matches a lot more interesting. So, um, but in the United States, you know, he never was. And I always wondered, you know, Andre worked with Hogan you know, all over in 1980. I mean, and even earlier in, in Dothan, Alabama was the real famous one that really, Pat and I talked about this the other day, I think that um, the Dothan, Alabama match kind of made Hulk Hogan's career in a lot of ways because they had this record crowd in this small city, and then all of a sudden, you know, Hogan was just a guy working a small territory. He was nobody famous or anything, and all of a sudden, it's like this guy drew five thousand people in Dothan, Alabama. Maybe there's something to him, and that's where he got his he got his job in Georgia, which got him on national television through that. And through Georgia, was next was WWF, and then WWF they did the Andre Hogan angle, which played all over the United States because Vince Vince's father was running the company, and they would send the tapes to New Orleans for the Superdome or Los Angeles. I remember seeing it in Los An- on Los Angeles TV. You know, and and, and um, there were probably a lot of other places where it was the angle from um, the WWF television where Hogan clotheslined him with a foreign object and Andre bled, and then Hogan body slammed him, and it was a real impressive-looking slam. And all of a sudden, Hogan is this larger-than-life guy as a heel. But but 
then Hogan goes to the AWA and becomes much bigger than he ever was in WWF. And Andre would come in from time to time, and they were they would be a tag team against. I think they often would wrestle like four Hogan and Andre against like four heels, something like that. And um, even then, I was like, you know, why don't they do Hogan and Andre and have Andre go heel because Hogan's so over. But you know, Vince. Maybe Vince Sr. never allowed it, you know, because Andre never got, never worked heel, you know. And then um, when Vince Sr.'s out of the picture, 86, Vince Sr.'s already passed away. To me, it was always obvious. It's the obvious thing. Hulk Hogan, this giant baby face. Andre goes heel with Bobby Heenan. And, um, you know, as soon as they did that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I knew that they were going to sell out the Pontiac Silverdome, but the minute that angle was shot, I was like, they're going to set the all-time attendance record. And I was figure in 40 to 60,000 like that. The minute I saw that angle, I was like, this is going to break every attendance record because it's, you know, Andre was undefeated in North America in everyone's eyes. You know, no one remembered the matches with the Sheik or whatever. It's been so long. And Hogan, nobody had seen him lose since he came back to WWF. And, and, he, and Hogan, by this point, this is 87. Hogan's already larger than life. You know, Hogan really hit it big, I would say 84, 85, you know, with the Cindy Lauper stuff. And so this is already a couple of years in Hogan's gigantic. Andre's Andre, the giant, never been a heel before. And, um, you know, the way they did it, you know, it was a slow build. It wasn't like they shot the angle on, uh, raw on Monday. And then three weeks later on the pay-per-view, they did it. I mean, it was, right. it was January <laughs> and we got the match at the end of March. So we had three hard months of, you know, getting the story going. And by the time the match came, I mean, everybody was waiting for that match with bated breath. I mean, I, I would call it, I think it's fair to say it was the biggest pro wrestling match ever in North America. I mean, you, you could argue there's two or three others, but I would put it, I would put it number one. Just, um, you know, looking back and everything like that. I mean, you know, Austin Rock was big at WrestleMania uh, 17, and you can go with, like, Gotch and Hackenschmidt and, you know, whatever. Bret, 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 Hart Sean, Bret Hart and Sean in some ways. But I, I really think Hogan and Andre would be, if I was to say, like, the biggest match in the history of North American wrestling, that would be the one I would say. Let me tell you the reason why, Dave, just to add on to that. The reason why I think it's the biggest is because it's still 1987. For me, as a 16-year-old kid, I kind of knew what wrestling was, but I didn't know for sure. I believed it. It was real. You know, uh, I, I had seen a couple times where someone you know, whispered backdrop and then somebody took a backdrop, but it, it hadn't clued into me yet that this was all show business. So that angle to me, the reason why it is the biggest match is because when Andre ripped Hogan's shirt off, and I still remember you guys talk about it in the book, and it ripped his cross off and, and a happy accident of, of you know cutting his chest with his fingernail and that blood dripping down, I believed it every single bit of it like Andre the Giant just turned on Hulk Hogan and went with the Heenan family and like oh my gosh what's going to happen so I think it was it was kind of one of the last few times before the early 90s when you had a big big angle that that kids like me believed in it a thousand percent the other one too is is that even though like I will say that like you know I knew obviously Hogan was going to win and it made sense the fact is, is that nobody had ever seen Andre lose and nobody could even envision the idea of Andre losing and nor could they envision the idea of Hogan losing, which created a dynamic. You know, it's like, how do you repeat it? And it's like, you know, I remember someone asked me once, like, how do you repeat it? And I go, well, you know, like, have one guy go undefeated for five years and have one guy go undefeated for 15 years, and you might be able to match it. You know what I mean? Right. What do you think, Pat? What is the most fascinating thing to me about this is that in many of 
the books or documentaries uh, done on Andre is is the, the story is that reforming it really was his last great moment, and after that, you know, it, it went down the road. Yeah. And in fact, to me, it was the beginning of of his last run, in the sense that the feud between Ogan and Andre was so big and so huge that it was the foundation of the early WWF pay-per-views. After WrestleMania three, he had the back surgery that many think that happened before WrestleMania three, but in fact it was after WrestleMania three that he got the uh, the surgery. And then he came back and did the Survivor Series match on the very first Survivor Series, and it was Team Ogan against Team Andre. And then in January of 1988, it was the first Royal Rumble. And, and aside from the, the, the Rumble match, the big draw was Ogan and Andre's contract signing for the uh, February 5th, 1988 match at main event, prime time on NBC that drew 33 million people when Andre defeated Ogan for, for the title and, and you know, the, the, the whole storyline getting it to, uh, giving the title to, selling the title to the Diazzi. And then WrestleMania 4 was all about Andre and Ogan, Andre and Ogan's rematch. And then SummerSlam of 1988, so the very first SummerSlam, it was the Mega Bucks against the Mega Powers, again using Andre and Ogan as the main feud. So, so you know, when we talk about the Big Four, you know, as far as pay per views goes, I mean, the Big Four was Mania, Survivor Series, Rumble, and SummerSlam, and two of them were created on on the Ogan and Andre feud. So it was something that is that that was never really explained that way, and for us, it was really really important um, to to put that feud into uh, into context and see really what uh, how much good it did to WWF at the time. The other part of, of those that feud, and when you're talking about those dates, and, and the SummerSlam would be the exception, but almost all of those dates were head-to-head with the Jim Crockett Promotions Mega Show. Yep. So Andre was there. You know, they were in a, a bitter promotional war, and, and, you know, essentially by blocking them and going head-to-head and, and using the Andre Hogan feud, which was so big after WrestleMania three, it was still big, you know, really put Jim Crockett Promotions out of business, you know, by, by the use of the way that they strategically used Hogan Andre, because you got to remember, aside from those dates that you mentioned, and, and um, you know, there was a couple of house shows. There was a stadium show in Milwaukee. Yep. There was a show in Greensboro that didn't do so well. But Andre and Hogan were kept apart, except when Jim Crockett had a big big one or when they wanted to develop the, the SummerSlam show, you know, as a, found, as a foundation. They were, always, they, were, they were not wrestling each other week in and week out on television or at house shows or anything. It was only on those dates that were important dates. Let's talk about the, the actual day of the show of WrestleMania 3. The Hulk, God bless him, greatest storyteller in the business, you know, saying he doesn't know what the finish is and all this other stuff. And then also you explained, too, in the book about Andre's condition uh, and kind of the state he was in during the match. Let's talk about that day and, and how that match went down and the finish and Andre's attitude and, and, and all that other stuff. I, I mean, it was pretty much... Andre playing in Ogan's head. In the documentary, uh, I mean, for some reasons, they they decided to believe Ogan's story about how, you know, it went down and about how he, he came into the match not knowing if Andre would, would, would be the job for him or not. In reality, 
I mean, it was just Andre's playing in, in Ogun's head. I mean, he was that kind of guy. He was always a prankster. He was always, you know, trying to 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 have fun with with, with you know his opponents and stuff like that. And and his definition his definition of fun is is uh, is very different than, than other people. You got to remember that this is the guy who actually was very good friends with Dusty Rhodes, and he decided that as a prank. He would pee on Dusty's head, and it was funny to him. And Dusty thought it was funny as well. So, so for him, playing Hogan's head was just another prank, you know. And 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 that was confirmed to us by by Pat Patterson, you know. So Pat, I mean, Andre was always going to do the right thing. There was no mistake about it. He, he was just having fun with Hogan, and, and probably that all kind of became stressed about it. He knew it was it was a big match. Uh, you know, and maybe it was, he just started getting stressed about, you know, well, you know, is, is Andre really going to do the job for me? And, and it worked. But at the, at the end of the day, Andre was never going to put himself over and he was, uh, he was always going to do business about it. You know, that was Andre. But there was a match in New Orleans about seven years earlier. Um, you, you, oh, yeah. I'm sure you know the story where, and, and I think it was a miscommunications issue. Maybe it wasn't. There was a, a show at the Superdome. It, it was during in Andre and Hogan, neither of whom worked the territory, but they were brought in as, as kind of like a special attraction on the show. And, and in all those matches, Andre won. And at the Superdome, for whatever reason, it was a double countout. According to Watts, he said to Andre, you know, they wanted Hogan to, I mean, Andre to win. And I don't know if Hogan said no. I don't know why he would have, because in every other city he put Andre over, but whatever. Somehow the word got, and they did do a double, I think it was a double count-out finish or something, but Andre um, heard that Hogan wouldn't put him over, and Andre made Hogan's life absolutely miserable in that match. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it was two weeks before, it was a few weeks before the, 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 the Shea Stadium match in 1980, and, and I mean, for whatever reason, it seems like Hogan didn't want to do the job for, for Andre, I don't know if it had anything to do with the Shea Stadium where he knew he was gonna he was gonna you know lose. But at the end of the day, Andre told Watts that you know he was gonna take care of it. And and when Andre was saying that, it wasn't necessarily good news for his opponent because Andre knew how to take care of things in the ring, you know, in only one fashion. So so Oregon probably got uh, got a good beat up by, by Andre. But at the end of the day, Andre decided to to, to do a double countout. Uh, but you know, it was seven years before, so I mean, a lot of things. You know, uh, Andre was invited to Ogan's wedding three years later. So I mean, everything was settled between the two. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I designed that WrestleMania three happened. Uh, but maybe maybe Ogan still has that in, in the back of his mind. I don't know. Uh, but uh, definitely, it was uh, uh, in '87. Andre knew that you know. It was the other way around, and he was an elite dog at this time. Talking about uh, ma- matches and, and, and angles that I'll never forget, I was working, I used to work in a deli, whatever night it was, where, where Andre had the match with Hogan and, and beat him and then sold the title to DiBiase. I, w- I was working the deli, and my best friend came running in because he was able to see it, and I was recording it. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. What? There's 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 an evil twin referee and and they and it, dollar bills were falling out of his pocket and and Andre the Giant won the title and sold it to the, and I was like what and I had I couldn't wait to finish up my shift 
so I could get the hell out of there and go home and find out what happened. Talk about another unbelievably great angle uh, for that for that follow up match. Yeah, that was um, you know like Dave Hebner was working for Vince and Earl Hebner was a referee for Crockett and like a week before you know Earl gave his notice you know which was surprising to go to work up there and and that was the deal you know they did that that twin Hebner referee thing and um, just all the confusion and you know the whole idea obviously was to build for. The, um, you know, the tournament to at, at the next WrestleMania for the championship that would be vacant, which was a way to get the title. I mean, I guess originally on Ted DiBiase, but later on, on Rand, it ended up being Rand, the decision was made for Randy Savage to get it, which which led to, um, in my mind, actually the the greatest one year storyline in WWF history, which was the Hogan Savage thing. You know, because I thought that the WrestleMania was it be five mm-hmm. Hogan Savage was a Another monster match, you know, which it didn't have to do as much to do with Andre, but that whole run from three to five with the usage of Andre and Hogan, and then Hogan and Andre going out in that tournament with a double disqualification. So the two big guns are out, and then it clears the way for Randy to win. And then Hogan having never lost to Randy, Randy then going heel and all that. That was um, the way that went down. That was real. That was, that was some of the best stuff they ever did. And the fact also that. They, they, when, when DBSV was, uh, you know, quote unquote, bought the uh, world title from Andre, he even defended it uh, a, a couple of times, right, you know, the, 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 the days after uh, February 5th, before, you know, it was announced by Jack Tunney that the title would be uh, held vacant. So, so that, that, that is another fascinating thing that he actually defended the title, at least on one occasion. Uh, but you wore the belt on, on, on other uh, matches as well. And uh, the whole thing about the DSV coming to the WWF at the time, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating story as well in the sense that he was told by Vince that uh, he wanted to bring him, he had a special idea for him, something that would make him a lot of money, but he didn't want to tell him what the gimmick was going to be before he actually signed because he thought that the gimmick was really, really a good idea and didn't want to, that he didn't want to take the chance that if DBSZ wasn't going to sign with him, that he would, you know, know about the idea and, and tell other promoters about it, I guess. Uh, so, uh, so pretty much DBSZ signed the contract without even knowing what he was going to be doing uh, in the WWE web. And, and, you know, he probably never regretted it. Uh, since it was, you know, I, I mean, Ogan and Savage was a great feud, um, but I, 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 you know, arguably, Ogan and Andre is probably one of the, you know, best feuds in the history of the promotion as well. Was there any specific reason or was Andre just confused? I remember when, and you, you talk about in the book, but seeing it where he said, you know, I'm now selling the World World Tag Team Championship to Ted DiBiase or whatever the hell. What did he say exactly? <laughs> well, we, we, we did ask um, we did ask Gene Okerlin about this since you know it was him in the ring with Andre, and he said we said well you know that's the thing that that's the thing that Andre could get away with. According to to Gene, no one ever told Andre anything about this, and he said it twice. Mm. <laughs> For God's sake, you know he, he said it twice, and no one ever told him anything. That that's the thing that Andre just could get away with. I mean, the one thing on that one, because at that time, live television was rare. Right. You know, like it would have been, if it was any other 
thing, it would have been edited off, but they were actually live, so they couldn't edit it off. Yeah, it just is one of those things you just added to the whole, like, and, and I was going to say, too, did, here's another thing that could never happen in this day and age with internet and, you know, the mass distribution of Wrestling Observer and all that other stuff. The fact that nobody knew that Dave Hebner had a twin brother. Well, people knew he had a twin brother, but they didn't know that, that, that you know, he was because he was a referee with Crockett, but they didn't know... Yeah, I don't think anyone knew when he gave notice, you know, because he didn't give notice and tell tell them, you know, what the angle was. I think if he told them what the angle was, it probably would have gotten out ahead of time. But he just gave notice, and there he was, and it was live. But, yeah, of course, if that was back in those days normal, it would have been taped three weeks earlier before we saw it. And if that was the case, you know, of course, everybody would know ahead of time. You know, because most Saturday Night's main events, I mean, like, the only live ones were the, the Friday night ones. The Saturday night main events were always taped, you know, anywhere from a, a day to a, to a month ahead of time. Was that a, a Vince angle or just from his old booking team? I don't know. I, I, I don't know who actually came up with it. But, I mean, in that era, I mean, it's Vince and it's, it's, uh, it's, Pat. Vince and, it's Pat, and Pat Patterson. Yeah. So it's, it's one of the two. What a great, great idea. Did you talk to Pat at all for, for any of this? Pat LaPrade, did you talk to Pat Patterson at all for any of the research for the for the book? Yeah, 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 we did. We did. Since, since Bertrand, the, uh, the, my co-author with the book, uh, he's the one who, who wrote uh, Pat's uh, biography, Accepted. So, you know, we know Pat, and and, uh, and Bertrand spoke to him about uh, about Andre and everything. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we, we did speak to him, and, and, and as I was saying, you know, he's the one who told us that. Uh, that that Ogan knew about, you know, that that Andre would do the the job for him and uh, and give us a few. Uh, he, he was very close to Andre for uh, a number of years, you know, because not only because they worked together for a long time with Vince, and they both were close to uh, to Vince Senior, but also uh, Andre, as you know, if you spoke French. Automatically, you were Andre's friend. Right. <laughs> you didn't need more. So you were close friends with, with Rick Martel, with Gino Brito, with French Martin, with, uh, with, Pat, with, with one of your favorite uh, wrestlers' names ever, Triff, uh, Gilles de Fish Poisson. I love it. <laughs> he was, he was <laughs> friends with all of those uh, Quebec guys. And, and Pat, you know, was, was uh, you know, one of the closest to, uh, to, uh, to Andre. Well, one of the things when, you know, Andre in the 70s when he would tour, you know, obviously he'd come to Northern California and Pat Patterson was the top attraction. And Patterson and Andre always were together when Andre would do his, you know, and, and I mean, it was usually only a couple of days a year. But when he would come here, you know, they were they were always together because he, Pat was the one guy who, he was friends with Pepper Gomez, but Pat was the guy who spoke French. And I remember when I was a kid, they did like... Um, Oh, it was a, a charity telethon together, you know, which was really interesting because Andre, you know, didn't do a lot of stuff in, in that type of, a, you know, on, 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 a, on P, it was a PBS station and seeing Andre in there. Pat, I mean, even Patterson being out of the wrestling realm was, was weird for that era. But then you see like all these people, you know, doing the, the telethon with the phones. And then you've got Andre, who's, you know, three times the size of everybody else in there. It was one of those visuals that um, you know I would never forget. <laughs> just as uh, yeah, just a quick segue, I love the fact he's he's Gilles the fish poisson, which poisson means fish in uh, in, in French. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were calling 
You were calling Maurice Wallet Poisson, if I remember correctly, because of that. Yeah, it's our uh, nickname for each other, Poisson. <laughs> As we start to kind of get to the end here, you know, right after all that stuff that we just spoke about with Andre, and then, then going into the tournament, and then I know they stuck him. They stuck him. They put him with with King Haku for a while. And Tongo always told me great stories and great memories of Andre. Um, but how much pain was Andre in uh, towards the end, and how limited were were his were his matches as a result? I mean, he was in a lot of pain because his body kept growing. He wasn't getting taller. But his body kept growing. His bones were getting larger. And 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 just before uh, a few months before he passed away, he had a, another uh, crisis of uh, of growth. You know, and and when when those happened, he was in tremendous pain. And plus, if you add the disease he had and all the years of you know taking bumps and and wrestling. So many times a week, uh, never taking a day off, you know, except when he, he was getting some surgeries. You know, he was in a lot of pain. And that's another reason, Chris, why he was drinking so much. Mm-hmm. Even his drinking, his drinking changed over the years. You know, Paul Vachon didn't remember Andre drinking hard liquor when he was in Montreal in the early 70s. But by the end of his year, uh, hard liquor was, you know, he was drinking a lot of... Uh, of, of hard liquor because it, it would ease his pain. So it, it was very hard on him. And, he, you know, he, he, after his back surgery, he started taking painkillers because, you know, that's, and he was never someone who, who used, you know, any, any kind of, uh, of, 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 of drugs, of pills, you know, to ease his pain. Um, you know, drinking was probably the only thing he was he was doing. But after his back surgery, he needed painkillers, and uh, yeah, it was it was very hard on on him. And that that's the reason why he was barely able to wrestle anymore. You know, by uh, by the uh, early 1990s, and, and why he looked so. Uh, you know, it wasn't the same Andre uh, when you look at at his matches in Japan, and that, that's why Vince wanted him to. Retired, you know, so it was it was very hard on him. You know, one thing I remember, and I don't remember if San Francisco or Oakland, but um, um, Andre worked in the Bay Area, and you know, he worked a match, and he was limited. I remember he was always holding onto the top rope and staying in the corner in the match in his big spot where he would get tied up in the ropes. You know, that was the one thing that he did pretty much till the end. But it was so sad because after I remember him, Andre being in a wheelchair taken to the hotel from the back of the building. Um, you know, rather than walking or, or, or anything like that. And it was just like, that's when it really, like, I remember it hit me of, oh my God, like this guy is, is like, he's still wrestling, but he's in a wheelchair to get around. I mean, that's, and and, and he still wrestled, I would say, you know, I'm going to say three more years after that. You know, it's, it's interesting when you think about, about this, about a guy who, you know, his whole life was wrestling and it would be very hard to a have to give that up. And also knowing that his body was, was turning on him. Uh, and obviously he knew he was going to live a short life because it, I think it's, it's something to mention too, Pat, that you talk about Andre is also very, a very generous guy uh, because I think he knew that he didn't have a long time uh, to live on this earth. Oh yeah. You know, in a sense that, that that's another reason why, uh, we, we're sure that, you know, he knew about his disease by 1970 because he, he, when he came to Montreal, 
he was already talking to his friends here, uh, like Paul Gershon, like Paul LeDuc, and telling them that, you know, he didn't have uh, a, long life, a long life to live. Mm-hmm. He already knew that. That's why he was drinking at first, because he just decided to live life to its fullest. And, uh, and he was just, you know, a, a, a fun guy to be around, drinking, having fun, uh, being generous with his, uh, with his family, with his friends. And then the drinking changed because he was drinking more because of the pain than just to have fun. And you could see it also in his, in his, in his uh, attitude, you know. Uh, by the late 80s, Andre wasn't the same guy. You know, he was... Uh, he, he couldn't. He, he couldn't be in a big crowd anymore. You know, he was getting frustrated, and and he would get angry more often, uh, probably because of all the pain he was in, and probably of you know he was he, he wasn't a fool. You know, he knew he, he understood what Vince was trying to 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 say and was trying to do, and he, he got that his career you know was uh, was not going to last for another ten years. But you know, that's the only thing. He knew, and and he wanted to keep doing it until, probably until until what what happened in in, in January of 1993, right? So it was not uh, those last years, uh, maybe the, the last four or five years of his of his life, must probably been hell for him. I think um, Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about this in the in the HBO documentary, but I remember the story where Andre and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Will Chamberlain were all in Mexico at the same time. Um, Andre was wrestling, and I think Wilt and um, Arnold were doing a movie. Yeah, they were filming Conan the Destroyer, yeah. Conan the Destroyer. And they were all out to dinner. You know, and at this point, Arnold's, a, I mean, not as big a star as he eventually became, but he was absolutely a big, big star. Like, when they went out, it was like, you know, Arnold wanted to pay for dinner, and Andre was just like, no way. You know, it's like, that's, you know, I mean, he was almost insulted by the fact that Arnold wanted to pay for dinner. But, but more than that, more than that, he, he was he was actually when he was in France, when he was starting in the business, and back in '65, '66, when he was training, and and you know I just started, uh, he wasn't making much money. He was alone in Paris, and uh, he, sometimes he was sleeping in in a subway station. He started you know working as a doorman in some uh, in some clubs in Paris, and he was in a district. The, the wrestling in Paris at the time was in the red light district where there was a lot of, of uh, prostitutes there. And Andre knew a lot of them because, you know, he was hanging out, he was working, he was wrestling in that district. And those those women were always, always very good to Andre. They protected him and, and sometimes, you know, they gave him a place to stay. And Andre never forgot about it to the point that years later, maybe 20 years later, even Montreal with Chino Brito, and he's eating in a restaurant, and there's a prostitute who comes in the restaurant. She's, something happens. She's not uh, looking good at all. Something, I don't know, she got beaten up or something, uh, but she had lost. Oh, yeah, exactly. That, that, that's the thing. She got stolen uh, from all the money she had, and Andre just reached out to his pocket, gave her a few hundred bucks, mm. and then he told Gino Rico the story about how Back in the day, you know, prostitutes helped him a lot in, in France, and, and, uh, and it was his way to give back, even though it was 20 years ago and it wasn't, you know, the same, the same person, you know, uh, and, you know, so 
So it was it was really something. Uh, Andre never never forgot where he came from, his roots, and and that's just how generous he was. Last two questions for you guys. Um, so many. Uh... You know, like I said, when you when you watch Under the Giant, there's so many great moments and angles from, you know, a storyline standpoint. But he could actually was a really great worker as well. If you watch some of his stuff in the '70s, what is your personal favorite Andre the Giant match, uh, Dave? I'll start with you. Is there one that pops in your head? You know, the one that almost everyone will say was his best match was a match with Stan Hansen in Japan, which was an un, unreal match. Yeah, Stan Hansen was already a big star because he won the match. And you wouldn't beat Andre unless you were, you know, big, big star. It was a count-out finish. I remember um, that match was so heated, and it was the match that made... It turned Stan Hansen from a big, big star into a mega star. And, you know, Stan, you know, and, and not just because of that match, but that match was the catalyst of it. You know, I would say, if you ask who the biggest American wrestling star in the history of Japan is, I mean, you, you, you could say Dick Beyer from another generation, but of our generation, it would be Stan Hansen, and that match... And that might be Stan's most memorable match in Japan as well. So if, I would say that I thought that was the best Andre match I ever saw. And that's the reason why Stan accepted to do uh, the forward for the book, because he had so much respect for Andre. He always said that, you know, Andre made him in Japan after that match. My favorite match, I mean, you know, I was, I was uh, 10 years old at the time, so to me, it's the match that I've seen so many times, and it had to be the match with Oaken. It wasn't the best match of Andre's career, uh, of course not. But it, you know, it, it's still to this day my favorite match of of, of Andre because it, it it brings back so many memories of my childhood, and and one of the reasons why you know I I, I fell in love with uh, with pro wrestling at a young age, and um, yeah, so it, it would have to be that match. You know, I also want to bring up, and I, I, I presume, and Pat would know this for sure, that there's no tape of this match, because I've certainly never seen it, but um, I would have loved to have seen, and I know it was the first or the second, but it was the DQ finish of Andre and Don Leo Jonathan from um, from Montreal, because it was written up in all the magazines, and so I'm like 11 years, 12 years old at the time, and I'm reading this, and it's it's like this fantasy, you know, you envision the match, how it's going with giant Don Leo Jonathan, who's the most athletic big guy of the time, and Andre, who was still not working giant style. I mean, he was still doing a lot more things that people don't realize that he did when he was younger. And then the whole idea of Andre just, like, losing control and getting disqualified and throwing everyone around. And, I mean, the way it was written was like this, it's almost like mythical stuff that you would read and you would envision in your head, and, and probably it was better than it really was. But, um, I always, as a kid, remembered the descriptions of, of that one Andre the Giant on Leo Jonathan match. Yeah, it was it was the first it was the first the first match uh, in Montreal in in May of 1972, and unfortunately, uh, none uh, none of the footage none of the footage is available today. So that's 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 probably the match and, and the whole series actually. You know, the, the three matches between May and September of uh, 1972. It's probably the the matches that I would have loved to see. Uh, the most. For me, of course, I got to go Hogan and Andre just because of the, of the story and the monumental, you know, just how big it was for me as a kid. But from a work rate, that Dave stole mine. I love the handsome one. But there's, a, there's another really cool one that I saw. Uh, I, I watched it a couple days ago when I knew we were going to do this. I'd seen it before, but it's the uh, Andre versus Abdul the Butcher from um, 
uh, from Puerto Rico in 1983. And it's not long. It's only about, I don't know, five or six minutes. But Andre, it's still when he was wearing tights, short tights. He's still in pretty good mobility. And he's, he, he just go out, goes out there and just kicks the shit out of Abby, uh, which is great because you know Butcher never sold anything or really ever ran the ropes. But in this one, he's doing whatever the hell Andre wants him to do. But when Andre sells for him, he makes him. He knew that Butcher was a top guy in Puerto Rico. And when it's when it's Abby's turn to to fire back, Andre's there for it. It's it's a really cool, uh, really cool little moment between these two really big guys who aren't really known for for selling, who go out there and 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 you know sell the shit of stuff. And of course, it ends like in a giant double double count out on the floor. <laughs> it's, it's a cool one to watch. There's also one I don't know if Dave if Dave you remember it, but I I watch it online. Uh, while doing the research on the book. But it was a 1978 or 1979 match against Arlie Race oh. in Houston. That is a lot of I have never seen that too. match, but people have told me that that's one of Andre's best matches. Well, Harley was great at that time. It must be, yeah. It, 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 he, was, he, was, he was great in this match. Probably one of his last best matches. I, I believe his ankle injury hurt him a lot after in 1981. And, you know, that's the first time that his body... Uh, began failing on him. So everything before 1981 was probably a lot better than, 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 you know, whatever else, except perhaps that match in Puerto Rico that Chris was mm-hmm. talking about. But, you know, in the seventies, Andre was, was still able to, to, uh, to have great matches. Pat, I want to ask you real quick because, because I didn't get to the other day when Andre died, it was, it was a, a bodybuilding writer actually. Who, who I knew, who like was writing a story on his obituary and was like, what if, you know, Andre had gone into, you know, not bodybuilding, but, but powerlifting or, you know, maybe Greco-Roman wrestling or judo or something, you know, it's like, what if he had done like a real sport? It was one of those great what ifs, you know, and we never really, there's, there's no way to answer it because Andre never was a weightlifter guy, but had he been, I mean, look at that frame i mean it's just like when you looked at andre when i was a kid it's like you know he had to be the strongest man in the world and even people who knew him said that like he never did deadlifts so to speak but his ability to like lift a car you know what i mean which is essentially a you know an offshoot of a deadlift like he could do stuff that, that nobody else could do because he had that you know leg butt hip power that that no human could have yeah the natural strength especially in his early days, but he was never into sports. Uh, you know, he, he played a little soccer uh, when he was young in, in his village in France, but, you know, he was never into uh, into sports, never into uh, lifting weight. He, even Vince tried to get, Vince give him access to his gym before us owning a tree, and he was trying to uh, make Andre drink some uh, uh, protein shake and Andre didn't like it because because it made him fart too much. So so Andre was not a gym rat. He, he didn't like it. You have to remember that by the, the mid eighties, Andre didn't have the strength he used to have, and that's because of Akromigali. I mean, I remember a story in uh, in the Princess Bride filming that he couldn't even catch uh, Robin Wright. Uh, when she was, uh, there's a scene where, you know, she's falling from the sky and he, he, he catches her. She had to, uh, to be owned by, uh, cables, uh, because Andre didn't have enough strength in his arms by that time 
to catch uh, a, a girl who probably weighed a hundred pounds at the time. You know, it, it's a big what if, uh, you know, but it, probably when he was younger, probably when he was leaner in in, in the late sixties, uh, he would have been he would have been a, a big star in uh, in other sports or you know amateur wrestling or something else, but. It, it never interested him. He was looking. Pro wrestling was really the thing that he fell in love with, and and he wasn't a big sport guy ever. Last question: How many beers did Andre drink in in one sitting? When I started training in Calgary, I remember Keith Hart told me, "Oh yeah, Andre used to drink three three boxes of wine a night. You know, three cases of wine a night, and then he drank eighty beers. He drank a hundred beers. He drank hundred and fifty beers." Did you ever get a line on what the real number is, Pat? And and have you heard anything about that too, Dave? Well, it's the kind of story that someone will tell you that, oh, yeah, I was there in Tampa (laughs) where, you know, when he he drank 115 beers. I was there in Georgia when he drank uh, drank 118 beers. I was there in Germany when he he drank, uh, you know, 100 and and, and, and so beers. I mean, it seems like my, my belief is that it must have happened one or twice, and probably more once than, than twice, but it seems like it's been told so many times that everyone in the business was there that, that, that <laughs> night, you know? It probably happened only one time. But that's the thing with Andre. He could entertain people when he wanted to. It's like those stories where he would order 10 steaks and eat them all. He could do it, and he did it at some occasions but only when he wanted to show off, only when he wanted to please the crowd. He wasn't eating that much on a regular basis. I was stunned when Jackie uh, McCauley told me that, you know, on a regular day at the ranch, he would, uh, he would be eating yogurt in the middle of the afternoon. I was like, what? Andre ate, Andre ate yogurt? <laughs> wasn't always, you know, eating like big steaks and potatoes and all that. He, he would show off from time to time. But probably we'll never know the, uh, the the real the real count on that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add to that, Dave? You know, it's like I I always figured that you know the wrestling story starts at eighty, turns to ninety, ended up at one hundred and thirty three. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but the thing is, I think that Andre's capacity for drinking, because of his size and everything, I mean, I'm sure it was, and he was, and because he drank so much that you build it up. I'm. I'm sure he was one of the great drinkers of all time. I think that, that that's not up for debate. But, um, you know, I mean, the story the story of him drinking 133 beers, passing out, and, and then putting the piano case over him, you know, in the lobby of a hotel. I mean, it, I suppose that that could be true. I mean, I mean, I remember hearing it, but like so many of the Andre stories, so that's the things I loved about story, so much. That's a story that, that Pat Patterson told us. So that, that I can tell you that it really happened. <laughs> no, I, I believe that it was. It was it was better for everyone to just leave Andre on the floor and just put something on him and, and leave him there because no one was going to wake him up tonight. You know? So, <laughs> like that happened, you know? A piano case. <laughs> well, guys, it's been great talking to you, like I said, and it's an excellent book, excellent read about one of the most, uh, if not the most, iconic characters in, in wrestling history. So, uh, guys, stay safe, and thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Chris. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks, Dave. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Au revoir. I did that on purpose. I don't have to miss. I believe you. So what happens now? We face each other as God intended. Sportsman life. No tricks. 
No weapons. Skill again, skill along. You mean you'll put down your rock and I'll put down my sword and we'll try and kill each other like civilized people? I can kill you now. Frankly, I think the odds are slightly in your favor at hand fighting. It's not my fault being the biggest and the strongest. I don't even exercise. 